at this point, summits have been a thing that have come and gone for a lot of people. Like it was a really cool thing. They're less common. And so we said like, well, what if we tried this and we call it the traditional skills summit? We had 101,000 people join the summit, which was huge. So essentially we launched our company with 101,000 people on our mailing list. Hey, so today I got to talk to Daryl Westerfeld, who is a longtime friend and helped grow ConvertKit in our craziest growth times. He led our whole growth team and all that. So I, I think we grew from 100000 a month when he joined to five, dollars $600,000 a month in just over a year. And it was completely wild. So he's one of the best marketers I know. He's spent a ton of time in different industries, whether it's B2B or software or course launches or all that. He's just been around a long time. And now he's fully immersed in this homesteading world. And so you get to hear about his background there. We get to talk about, actually probably the most interesting thing is how we took a summit, which is an idea that, I mean, they've been around a lot in online marketing, probably less popular now. And he just took that that summit and and executed it at an incredible level. They had over 100,000 registrants for the summit and basically launched a whole business off of it. So I think you'll enjoy the episode and let's dive in. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. It, it is so good to see you. We're going to hang out in person because you're going to come for Craft and Commerce uh, to Boise and stay on the farm, which is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. The, the first thing, speaking of farms, like years ago, well, you and I built a software company together, a little thing called ConvertKit. For anyone who doesn't know, Daryl was instrumental. We grew from what, 100,000 to 500,000 in MRR in 12 months? Something ridiculous. 12 months, yeah. I think it was a little bit more than that, but yeah, basically 100,000 to five, 600,000 in about 15 months. Yeah, like absolutely next level what we pulled off. But so normally you and I are jamming on all things growth and, you know, audiences and creators and all that. You're fully in the homestead world now. Like, so it's great that you're going to come out to the farm, but like, tell me about the transition from like New York City Daryl <laughs> to <laughs> Homestead Living Daryl. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wild transition. It makes a lot of sense to me because my grandpa's a farmer, and my family has a centennial farm in Michigan. So it's like a it's a historically protected centennial farm in Michigan. And so I grew up really rural areas. And as soon as I graduated high school, I went straight for the city. I was like, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this. So I moved right to Minneapolis, uh, right into the, the urban core, like downtown. Then I've lived in all kinds of cities since then. And most recently, New York and Nashville. And it just kept calling me home. And I had met Melissa Norris, then Josh and Carolyn Thomas from Homesteading Family, and they kind of just both like kind of would look at me with side eyes like this, like smiling, like you'll come home a little bit. And the more and more I dug into the content with them, the more I was like, this is calling me home in a, in a big way. So we now live, this, this is my, my old home. We call it the garden cottage. I was built in 1880. It's in Stillwater, Minnesota, about 35 minutes outside of the city. And we are just testing out if our family likes living outside of the city in more of a country environment. And we love it. So we've been here for almost a year. Love it out here. And and yeah, I would say 80% of my time now is focused in the homesteading world, which feels like home, but also is a lot different from, you know, the New York Daryl that, yeah. that you also knew. Well, there's something interesting. A lot of people in 
the creator business look to their own niche for inspiration, right? What's the person who's right next to me doing all that? And sometimes they do it as like, how can we partner? Other times it's like, oh, that's the competition. You know, that's, and which competition in the creator world is kind of like, sometimes it's competitive. Sometimes it's like, no, like the market's plenty big. You can actually, you can both get to your goals faster if you work together. But what I think is most interesting is when someone takes ideas and like skills that are honed in one industry and brings them to another industry. And so I'm going to see you doing that. Like you're phenomenal at sales, business development, uh, growing software companies. You've scaled a bunch of things for tons of different course creators that like, I, I won't list them all off, but like <laughs> name brands in the creator space that everyone would know. And now it feels like you're bringing this like just dialed in professional level of marketing to the homestead world where the audiences are really big. They're growing fast and yet not, I wouldn't say unsophisticated. Like there's some very, very sophisticated marketers and creators in the space, but like, yeah, tell me about some of the things that you've brought over, like what that transition has been like. And am am I right that you're like deliberately taking things learned in one industry and bringing it to a new one? Yeah. And to me, it was, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Matt Paulson, uh, not long ago. And he said, it seems like you might've found one of the last areas of the internet where internet marketers haven't like messed it all up. Yet. <laughs> well, good thing there are no internet marketers listening to this show. Cause if, they, if there are like stay away from the home setting world, like we're just hanging out and having a good time. I've, I've built big enough moats at this point. I think we're good. But <laughs> the, the, the part of the issue is that internet marketers can't infiltrate this world because authenticity is so important in this homesteading world, right? So you can't have, and and I won't name names, but there is a large homesteading website that, you know, I think gets a lot of traffic, but within the niche, everybody knows that it's an internet marketer that built the site and everybody knows that the content is a little bit suspect. Oh, like it's not someone's lived experience. It's from like, okay, uh, chat GPT, what do homesteaders want to know? And <laughs> what niche more than any other is going to be suspicious of AI and other things like that? <laughs> right. So, or you just like hire, making a content farm, basically. We like farming. We don't like content farms. <laughs> like it has to be lived and it has to be created by people who are living it, have lived it, know what they're talking about because they're going to get sniffed out really quickly if not. So I've been really lucky to find folks who are living the lifestyle. Like Melissa Norris who's a business partner of mine. She's a fifth generation homesteader. Josh and Carolyn Thomas who are business partners of mine. They live on 40 acres in Northern Idaho, you know, and they grow most of their own food. They live the lifestyle. It is, it is there. They eat, drink, breathe it. It's not like a, a different niche where you could maybe learn about it really quickly and then jump into it. And for me, it made a lot of sense because it really was like coming home. It was like my grandpa was a farmer. I grew up this. We had big gardens growing up. We either hunted or or grew most of our food. At different points, we had different farm animals running around our house. So like this was normal for me. It was like it was a homecoming for me in a lot of ways. So I could take everything that I had learned in the other spaces and bring it back to this niche. I wasn't posing because this was a big part of my life growing up. And I also had business partners who were living the lifestyle too. So it made a lot of sense. And, and so it it is like a really kind of well-protected niche because the authenticity piece is so big, but it also is like most of the people who are creating this kind of content, it's like their second or third thing that they're trying to do. They've got a 40 acre farm or a large family or 
you know, lots of animals are taken care of. So, yep. and they're probably homeschooling or something at the same time as well. And yeah, yeah, Home, homeschooling or there, there's a lot going on. So, marketing was not their core competency like it was for mine. Like I had spent, you know, more than a decade, fifteen years, becoming a, my core competency in marketing and growth. And now I'm coming back to this niche where they were spending fifteen, twenty, thirty years developing this niche, and now are starting into the marketing world. That was just a good, a good match and fit. Yeah, I like that because, like, you have to deeply understand the market, and there's so many things that that come from it. You know, just like the other day, Hillary and I were trying to leave the house, and we're like, "Oh, the pigs just got out," you know, and like, you know, you're like, "All right, well, I guess we're gonna be ten minutes late because we got to go get the pigs back in their pen." And someone outside the space is not gonna understand that. They're gonna be like, "What? What problems do homesteaders run in?" You know, or like, there's no story that comes with that, or like the way that you get your kids involved or anything like that. The reason we started Homestead Living is because I've also been, you know, involved in the publishing world for a while, as you know. And a lot of the large publishers were looking at some of these content creators and they're like, oh, they're just farmers. They don't get it. And the reality is, is like, no, they're incredibly savvy business people. Their audiences are huge. Their audiences are really powerful because of the authenticity piece. So like people underestimate them a lot. And and that is like that kind of underdog stuff gets me, I get chills, like even on the back of my neck thinking about it. It's like, these are the underdogs. Like, hey, big five publisher, you don't think that these people can sell a bunch of books? Well, guess what? We just created our own publishing company and we sold more books in the first, you know, three, four months than you guys did with a similar book in a whole year. So like we can do this too. And, you know, we're not going to just take 12% or 15% royalty on it. We're going to just keep the whole thing. So there's a phrase, uh, I don't know who it's a quote from, uh, chips on shoulders, put chips in, in pockets. <laughs> and, uh, it just like, as you were talking, that's what I think of. Cause like, you're someone that uh, I've always known, and I have this too, right? Has that bit of a chip on your shoulder, you know? And then you just channel it into like fantastic execution. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, look, I am completely unashamed about making money. Like, absolutely, if we're if we're delivering this much value, like, let's absolutely make money. I'm curious from the like the as you talk about that underdog side of the you know the chip on your shoulder or any of those types of things. Is that there are things that come to mind of how like how that serves you and how that serves your business partners? I'm also big into personality, like understanding personality. I'm an Enneagram eight. Anytime somebody challenges me, I'm like, all right, like I'll, I'll tell me I can't. And I'll just show you three ways that <laughs> right, I can. It's the Michael Jordan in the last dance. And then I took it personally. <laughs> yeah. And then I took it personally. So I, I mean, that's just a part of my individual personality that I think is, is really motivated by those things. So finding a niche where it's like, you're misunderstood, you're underrepresented people kind of look down on you, like look down their nose at you and think, oh, you're just a, a farmer. You don't know what you're talking about. Or you're just a homesteader. You know what you're talking about. It's like, oh, these are my people in more than one way, right? Like also when everybody's going to doubt you and everybody's looking at you, like you might not understand or they can like slide one over on you. Like that's my people in more than one way. So that chip on the shoulder, I think is in a lot of ways, like what represents the homesteading niche and uh, across the board is like, Hey, we want to do it our own way. We don't want to be told how we have to do it or when we have to do it or why we have to do it. We're going to do it in the way that's right for us. And so that chip on the shoulder, I think, is the underlying current of the homesteading world in so many ways. It's like you kind of have to have a chip on your shoulder a little bit to undertake such a big thing, which is, hey, I'm going to do things different than everybody else. And I like that. 
that, that's again my people. I was I was born in a trailer house on a, a sand hill in rural Michigan, right? Like I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be doing this kind of thing. And so it's like that idea of like, well, what's the, what's the bigger mountain to climb? I want to go climb that one because the reward is going to be bigger. The challenge is bigger, but the reward's also going to be bigger. And so that kind of chip on your shoulder is one way of putting it, but it's also like, I just like climbing the bigger mountains. Like it's more fun. It's more fun for me. Yeah. I like that. Well, let's talk about the different businesses that you have, because I think it's an interesting, we get into creator business models and so much we talk about, but maybe just give listeners a rundown on the main businesses that you're running and kind of the models of each one. Yeah. So the oldest one is an agency called good people. And this existed pre convert kit. Um, my time at ConvertKit, and I, I kind of kept it to the side while I was working at ConvertKit, and then resurrected it after I left ConvertKit. But it's an agency focused on work with creators. So right now we focus on websites, uh, email newsletters, and uh, course uh, marketing, course marketing and launches. With again, you, you mentioned some names. We even did the NathanBerry.com website one one time, long time ago. And uh, so those are the kind of things that we do there. It's a team of 15 people now, and it's a great business. I started the agency business because it was what I knew early on, like trading time for money. And then how can I, you know, scale that, that piece of it. And um, honestly, it's where I met both Josh and Carolyn and Melissa, who are business partners in other businesses. So that's the agency, good people. Then the next project is School of Traditional Skills. Um, think masterclass, but for homesteading and traditional skills. So classes from sourdough bread making to gardening to bone broth to milking goats to sharpening knives to all kinds of stuff. So right now there's a total of 15 classes with a new one releasing every single month. We built a custom software for that as well, a custom LMS platform to house that. And that's going really well. That's a, actually a venture backed uh, company. We were really excited about our partners in that. And that launched in September of last year. So September of 2022, it launched. And then the last business, the third one is Homestead Living. It's a magazine. Yeah, I, I have it. I've read about half of it at this point. I think Hillary's read the whole thing. So it's magazine, both print and digital, and then book publishing. And again, I think I, I talked about this a little bit before, but when the big the big boys were not taking us seriously, we just went and built our own. So I figured out distribution and printing and all of it, and we we built a publishing house by homesteaders for homesteaders, and growing an audience through the magazine to help sell more books for all of our our folks in the future too. For the magazine, give me a sense of scale. Like this is new, something you just launched. Like the first one just came out, right? Yeah. So we we launched in. We launched digitally in March of 22. We have 14,000 paid subscribers for that. Oh, nice. Um, the book released in, the book is called Everything Worth Preserving. It's a hardcover, full color, cookbook style book about food preservation by Melissa Norris. That released in January. We've already sold 11,000 copies of that since January. And the print magazine, we have already sold through our whole first print run. And it's a compilation of all of the digital from a year in print version. So we're on our second print run of that right now. So our email list is, uh, there's a weekly email called Homestead Weekly that goes out as well. That's about 20, just over 20,000 people 
lost. Oh, that's awesome. What do you think? I think a lot of creators get tired of doing things entirely digital and they either, you know, they try to express things in the physical world somehow, right? You know, they become a homesteader or they, you know, even like what we did with uh, the I am a creator books from ConvertKit, right? It's trying to take these ideas and bring it like we want something tangible, like just seeing your photos and your words in full color on a real page is something special about it. What do you think? Like, is this something more creators should try to do? Uh, or yeah, like how would you approach it? It's a hundred percent. I think it's, it's exactly what you said. I've been totally digital. I've been anti-physical products for a long time, but what we've found is there's just, I mean, I can pick this up and hold it and touch it. My grandma picked this up and she's like, Oh wow. Like Daryl's job is real. Like I can <laughs> yeah. see it. There's, there's something here. So I, I think it's brilliant. There also gives like a like a product matrix where it's like it's different, right? So there's digital. And we so what we did is we brought people in digitally first. So those twenty thousand people on our mailing list, those are a hundred percent buyers of something we've sold. And so when somebody comes in and buys a digital version, the number one question they said is like, Can I also get this in print? And so it is a hard process and I won't I won't underestimate that. It finding the printers, doing it right, finding distribution, all of it took a lot of work. But there's also like a fun aspect of it where our product mix isn't just like a course or a magazine or a membership. There's also like physical aspects of it. And people really, really love that. Because to me, it's much easier to expand product line to an existing customer than it is to bring in a new customer, like way, way easier. So bringing in the physical side of it is is really Cool. And then I just love the game of business so much, Nathan. It, it opens up a bunch of different doors on the growth side where it's like selling these things wholesale or um, like di- different and unique challenges. There are, there are a lot there. What we're, we're kind of looking at is like the gold standard of what we're trying to accomplish is what Chip and Joanna Gaines did is they had this massive audience and they built this entire big e-commerce brand and, and media brand around what they did from a single kind of point of, of, the TV show, and then it turned into a bunch of other things. Right. And so, so for anyone who doesn't know, that's Magnolia, Magnolia Network. They have a town. They have all kinds of stuff. They they own Waco, Texas, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the kind of idea. Is like, hey, there's digital stuff that you can consume, digital media, print media, and then also like you can move into an e-commerce side. But I, I just think it's it's great for for many many reasons. And I love. Yeah, I'm just thinking about. One thing that's interesting about what you did is you went all digital, and to be clear, you know it was a it was an online magazine, which is different. It's you know it's still written content and photos. It could have been blog posts. It could have been you know there's a lot of different ways that you could get this information out. But you, and there's just a little bit different packaging on it, and the the perceived value is higher. And then it lets you come back and say like, and here's the physical copy of it. Yeah, it was like one piece of content used two different ways and sold two different ways. And some people bought the print and didn't buy the digital. Some people bought the digital and not the print. Some people bought both. And now you're just, again, you're, you're creating more on-ramps into your company, but you're also creating more ways for a single user to buy from you. Right. I like that. What do you think, like, where do you think that business is going? Is that, you know, keep moving back and forth between publishing 
full-length books and the magazine, or is there something else in there that's planned as well? No, so we're gonna we're viewing it as a media company. So the whole idea is like, how can we do homestead media well? And so we've we've got five other books under contract that we'll release in the next eighteen months. So we're gonna continue down that pathway of of the books. But from the book publishing world, I love. I mean, as you can see, I love books. I read a lot. So I love that medium a lot, and I wanted to create books that are like heritage, like high quality books in our space. So we'll do more of that, but the publishing industry is so, I mean, unless you're James Clear or Mark Manson or some of these guys in the 1%, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So you maybe get an advance, like 10 to $25,000 in an advance to write a book. And the amount of work that goes into writing a book, if you were to do like an hour by hour breakdown, it's of not pretty. Make, Don't do the breakdown. <laughs> no, it's bad. It's, it's really bad. And then in this day and age, like you're then responsible to sell it mostly, especially at that, at that pace. Right. So then it's like, I'm writing it, I'm selling it. All you're doing essentially is designing it, laying it out, editing it, and then maybe getting me a little bit of marketing, but I'm probably a better marketer than you are as a publishing company at that level. Again, they're the outliers are the people that we've talked about where a lot of money goes into marketing that, that really makes sense for those folks. So for us, it's like, great. Well, what if the publishing house just did a lot more, but also gave you a lot more too. So our royalty cuts are between 35 and 50% to our authors. Right. Rather than like eight to 15. Yeah. Eight to 15, whatever it is, 20% if you're really lucky. Um, but also like, what if we built a marketing arm where it's not solely on your shoulders? And so that's the whole idea then of building the magazine. We'll likely launch a podcast network specifically of homesteading type podcasts in a future state. We might do some short form video stuff or some YouTube stuff in the future, but we're viewing it as a media company. So more magazines, more digital growth on our magazine books and trying to create an ecosystem then where, where we can all succeed together. I like it. Okay, so one thing that I want to talk about a lot is the summit. Yeah, for School of Traditional Skills. Yeah, yeah. So switching to the other business, this summit, like you built an email list. and How many people attended the, the summit that you did? Yeah, so to give a little bit of context, we, we built the masterclass-style company called School of Traditional Skills. It was two years in planning. So Josh and Carolyn had this vision originally. They're incredible people. If you are even remotely interested in this world, you need to check them out. They're, they're incredible people. What's their site? Homesteadingfamily.com. Really lots of great content. They're, they're honestly some of the best people I've ever met in my life. And I, I really love working with them, but they had this vision for, Hey, we want this content and this lifestyle to be able to reach more people. So school of traditional skills was, was born from their vision originally. And they invited me in to be a partner with them in launching this out. So We'd spent a lot of time developing content and had filmed a lot of classes and we had nine classes and we wanted to launch it out. And well, how are we going to launch? It was the number one question. And <laughs> like at this point, summits have been a thing that have come and gone for a lot of people. Like it was a really cool thing. They're less common. And so we said like, well, what if we tried this and we call it the traditional skills summit? And so we, we did a lot, we did affiliate marketing, we did advertising, uh, Facebook, Instagram, other advertising types to try to get as many people to come to this free summit. We took then modified content from the classes that we had developed and had then 
it was a streaming of some of that content plus then live Q and a and questions and conversation with the creators. So it was really great. We had 101,000 people join the summit, which was huge. So essentially we launched our company with 101,000 people on our mailing list. So yeah, the summit's fascinating because you, it gives you this event to market. Whereas normally what we're used to doing as creators is like, okay, I put out the blog post and I sent it to the email list of like 12 people. And then like, it's this methodical process and the summit has a date to it and it's inherently collaborative because you're pulling together speakers and all of this. And so I guess what I'm curious about is how do you go about putting this together? You know, obviously you have connections in the space, but like that is a huge to go from a business with, I won't say zero audience because right. Like Josh and Carolyn, like they have the audience and, and all that, but it like, they don't have an audience of that size. Their, their mailing list is, is much larger, but like this new is a brand new brand. Right. And so it was a, a whole new brand right from nothing. Nobody had ever even heard of school of traditional skills before. And also we didn't want to like, we didn't want to cannibalize their audience either. We wanted to like have our own, we wanted it to, the brand to stand on its own two feet. So it was a huge undertaking, Nathan. I, I, I won't lie. Like it's not something that you can just like pull together and do overnight, but the reward was huge for it because like after doing this kind of stuff for 15 years, it really is a simple formula. Like if what you're doing is valuable, people will want to be involved in it. Full stop. Right. So that's why we did so much planning behind it. So what we did is it was four days. There was 24 hours of free content over those four days live streamed. So we did all kinds of planning. We, we actually had our instructional designer help craft the, the sessions. So the sessions were not largely based on selling. They were not largely based on like getting people to do anything. We just wanted to deliver 24 hours of value to people over a four day period. And I think that's why it was so successful. And I think that's why summits were largely taboo is because they became these things that people just threw together really quickly with the goal to sell. Like, and this was a huge deal when we were at convert kit and why I think a lot of our webinars were so successful is we just said, Hey, like we're actually not going to ask you to spend any dollars today on the webinar. Like you've been asked to come to 15 webinars today. It is totally played out. We're not going to ask you to spend any money today on the webinars but we're just going to offer a ton of value and then we're going to give you a bunch of stuff for free and then, you know, you can go away. So it was that same mindset of, of it. So basically what it was, it was a two hour session, three times a day. We invited in, uh, we call them instructors to come in. We, we had our editors, our video editors put together some small portion of the class and the classes are, you know, 10 to 15 videos and so they would take like a small takeaway. So what, what is a piece of value or content that can live on its own? And we're going to teach that for this two hour session. And then we're going to dive deeper. So a lot, you know, it's, it's kind of like the behind the music idea. All right. So tell me more, like there's only so much that can be communicated in like a 10 minute video. Tell me so much more. And so conversations would go and we'd open up for Q and a, it was just a ton of high value with, with really high level people. So some folks that, you know, like Justin Rhodes was a part of it, Joel Salatin, Sally Fallon, some of the biggest names in the space too, was another big draw is that where else can you go other than maybe going to a conference in person once a year that you can hear all these people talk. So 
to us, it was like, what's the maximum amount of value that we can add? And then after all of that, then we can put the marketing strategy behind it. And you can do marketing strategy well, but if the value is not there, it's going to be shallow. And you can do all the value, but without the marketing strategy, it's going to be lonely. So those two things really have to go hand in hand. So we we spent a lot of time. We spent months and months developing the content. And we marketed it for about six weeks. So it wasn't a huge amount of time marketing it, but it was about a six-week window where we marketed it. And I think we did so well with it because people knew just from attending our free stuff how much value they're going to get if they're going to also buy. Yeah, so I want to focus on the curriculum design for a second because I, I think the approach you took is really interesting. You're not asking the instructors to come and create new material, like, hey, go make a new presentation and go present this. You're taking content that they've already made and you get to edit something nice and tight that's going to feel super high quality, right? Like, you know, you're just like, wow, this is fully, like a film crew did this, obviously, right? But usually when someone's thinking about a summit, it's like, no, I mean, it's you and me on Zoom and like, if we're on top of our game, we've got you know decent backgrounds and decent mics, and that's about all you're going to get. But just the the full video production in that case. But then what's interesting is you're not having to give away too much of the content, and you avoid the objection of like, well, why would I sign up for the for the school when I just got this for free? Like it's it's that taste. And then the other thing is like, well, why am I here live to watch something pre recorded? And so you, you've touched on it really interestingly of giving super high production quality, a taste of the content that they're ultimately going to buy. And then also the real life interaction and going deep and like, Oh, I can actually ask Justin Rhodes this question that I've been dying to ask him after following his YouTube channel for forever and building his chick shot and like, which I have done all of those things, <laughs> you know, but right. Like you, it's just it, you've packaged it up together in a really interesting way that I think most people miss when it comes to a summit where they're like, I don't know, I grabbed like five speakers with big lists and we're pulling it all together and hopefully we can drive plenty of affiliate sales, <laughs> you know, or whatever yeah, it works. And that's the shallow part, right? So it's like, great, you did a lot of awesome marketing for it, but then it's shallow. So you get one shot at that. People are not going to trust you the next time you come around and say, awesome, like we're going to do this summit again. They're like, ah, I'm good. I went last time and it was like, you're just trying to sell me something all the time. And it was like, low quality zoom conversation. So you're exactly right. There's a ton of strategy and thought that went into it. And you're right. Like we gave them a taste of what value they would get if they bought. And that to me is the other key is like, we're not giving away the whole class. We're saying like, you've seen the quality of the content now want more of it over here and you can, you can come get more of it. So it really ticked all the boxes for us. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. So when it comes, was there anything that you learned in, in the process of producing that, that you're like, oh, I didn't know that before. And like, now this is going to be a process, part of my process for, for every summit I do in the future. Takes about 10 times more effort than you think it's going to. <laughs> that, that's like the biggest takeaway is, is it's a lot of work to do it well, Nathan. Like, and I think the other thing that we, we really learned is redundancy was, was key. We actually were pretty smooth, but we had redundancy for everything that we did. So if a page was going to go down, we had both a Webflow and a WordPress website just in case one were to go down for some reason, you know, because we knew that so many people were going to be involved in it. You know, we had a whole team of like customer support behind the scenes asking questions. The one thing that we did learn is through that time, I think we got 15,000 emails 
of people like asking questions in a four day window. So it was a lot more like, you know, there was a time where we're kind of all sitting around in a circle, just responding to, to questions because there's a lot going on. Reminds me of the first Convertkit team retreat where we all sat in the living room and answered support tickets. <laughs> I, re- I remember that. I remember that very well. That's exactly what it was. There's a lot, just a lot doing it well, takes a lot of effort. So it is a thing that works, but it is also a thing like don't do it halfway to a mutual friend of ours, Tim Grawl his, his, one of his famous lines is no half measures. So if you're going to do it, like do it, do it all the way. I think the world wants more quality content and this is a fun way to do quality content, but like, just go all the way. Don't do it halfway. Don't phone it in. Don't just like do a bunch of marketing around having it halfway. But yeah, I think like the amount, I was surprised by the amount of emails that we had gotten responded to. And then like lots of redundancy just in case, because you know, if, if something crashes, then, then, uh, you, you have a backup. I want to go to the attendee side and then after that, the conversion side, but like, what were the things that worked the best to get those 101,000 people to sign up for the summit that I'm sure there was an 80, 20 in like you did a lot of things and some of them worked better than others. Yeah. So the two things that worked really well for us were just a Facebook ad video invitation. So we, we spent a good amount of money. Like it was not a, a cheap thing. We invested quite a bit into it, but we got pretty good. Is conversions. that like five figures, six figures, six figures. Yeah. So a six figure investment in that totally worth it for us. And that, but it converted really well. And, and it was a really great way of doing it again, that video format. I like, like to like content. So, Hey, here's a video invitation. So you get an idea of the quality oh. of the tone of voice then to a video type production. So that was really big. And then affiliate partnerships was the other big one. And this is, you know, this goes all the way back to our convert kit days. Right. But I think a lot of people, if you haven't been in this space for, you know, eight years or something, 10 years, then you're like, okay, how does, how does that work? And so, yeah, like break down how affiliate partnerships are done. So we, we, and I, I, I stole the convert kit playbook is, you know, our, our product was a, our product was a subscription. And so we allowed the partners to promote the free event. And then we used the email subscribers from that free event then to do the selling for them, which made it a lot easier for our partners to, to promote. So they were promoting a free event. Cause they actually, they never pitch. Never have to pitch anything, which was huge. So allowed us to get into partnerships that we probably wouldn't otherwise have had because nobody really likes to sell. There's like that, you know, 5% of people that really like it, but nobody really likes to sell. Even me, it's like, I don't like selling and I really don't like selling to something that people don't want. And, and so I I think that's probably true. Like, unless you're a, a sociopath, like nobody really likes to sell something to somebody that they don't need or want. So what we were able to do is like, Hey, here's a free event. It makes it really easy. More people want a free event than they want to buy something. So it allowed our, our partners to be able to promote something that was a ton of value to their audience. They didn't have to feel weird about selling something from somebody else. They could just like offer this free thing. So that was really, really big for us. And then we were able to do segmentation, right? People who are engaging in our stuff, then we could sell to the people who we knew were interested. So it allowed us to like, 
and I said this before, like the authenticity was huge in the homesteading world. Like we never had to cross any ethical lines for anybody. Right. And so everybody got to do the best case scenario for it. So then we paid them a 30% recurring commission for everybody that converted that they, they, they brought through. So we had some, some people get some, you know, great returns on, on making a, basically an introduction to a free event. And then we did all of the the, the selling and marketing on the back end. Okay. I like that. So the, the, the video ad in particular was worked really well. And then the, uh, partnerships. Yeah. And, and it's the, you're exactly right. There's an 80, 20, there were four partners that did, you know, 80% of the work. And then there was a, a whole handful of folks that we're really grateful to have been a part of, but it, it is that 80, 20. So it was like one, one video ad invitation ad did really, really well. We had a bunch of other ad sets that you know performed mediocre, but one that really did well, and then you know a couple of, of partners that did did really well. I think it was Chris Gillibo years ago that talked about the ninety eight two rule when it came to affiliates, and you, you know you're like oh eighty twenty, so like ninety eight two, you know it's like oh I guess ninety eight percent of your of your results are going to come from two percent of your audience, and it, he was like no no no, only two percent of your affiliates are ever going to sell anything, and that's going to drive all of your results. Like it can be so lopsided. And but you can also be surprised at which ones you'll you'll line up a deal and think oh this person's going to drive great results and then they just don't and someone else ends up with a smaller audience like working way harder writing better copy you know sending up the follow up email to promote it you know and driving much more results and this goes way back to ConvertKit I learned this when we did 150 webinars in 12 months or whatever we ended up doing. It was so many. And I was, I was a crazy person. I would have taught a webinar. If you like, if you could bring three people to a webinar, I'm going to teach a webinar. But it's three times as effective as a demo. It was way more effective as a demo, but also you didn't know who was who, right? So huge person list, like the, probably the people with some of the people with the biggest list were not our best affiliates. And it was some of the people that we might have not assumed were going to be good affiliates end up being good affiliates. That was true back then. It was true now. So we gave everybody a shot, right? And and I don't know that I would do that again because I've got a, lot, a little bit more gray hair and I'm a little bit older. I don't know that I can can do it at the same pace that I did back then. But like, there were some people that really surprised you. So you don't know who that 98 is necessarily because maybe some of the biggest lists of the biggest names might not be right. And then that 2%, there are some folks that you know way... I think our third highest affiliate was maybe the second or third smallest. Oh, okay, list. wow. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, there's a big difference. Like, you could even have an affiliate that's like, you know, there's one that sends out a single email to 50,000 people and gets whatever conversion rate, or someone else who's like really plugged in and posts in certain Facebook groups and is texting their friends and saying, hey, I think you'll like yeah. this. And, or, or it's like, hey, great, you've got 150,000 people on your list, but you have a 15% open rate. Or you have 25,000 people on a 40% open rate. And it's like the engaged list is way much better than the, the larger list. So there's so many variables in it that you can't just look at size to say this affiliate or this partner is going to work well. There's a whole list of, of things. And also, like, how does the offer land with a particular audience? Whether it's a free offer or the paid offer, like, how does that land with a particular audience that you can't? You can't guess at that stuff sometimes. So people will surprise you. When you're thinking about the content, you know, you're teaching 24 hours of content, so six hours a day over four days. So it, it, that was three three lessons, 
three sessions per day, basically. It, would you do that same cadence again? Was that too long, too short? What would you change? We're doing it longer this year. Oh. So we're going to do it again in September. We're going to do five days. We may shorten the sessions, but we're actually going to do it over a longer period of time so that more people can be engaged with it. So we'll likely do three sessions a day over five days to get more content out to people. But instead of two hours, we may do 90 minutes, make it a little bit shorter. But again, it's like a lot of experimentation. It Like Josh, who's my business partner and founder of School of Traditional Skills, he was the host for all 24 hours. Um, he was real tired. Yeah, he was real tired. Even though he wasn't the one teaching, he was just hosting and asking questions. It is a lot. So again, like I don't, I don't want to, this works, but I don't want to. I don't want to overstate how much work it is. Like I understate how much work it is. There's a lot to do it. Well, there's a lot, but the results can be really, really great. So we're going to do five days, probably a little bit shorter per session, but that gives people more opportunity to engage and then a wider breadth of content that they can engage with. And then is Josh hosting everything again? Or are you going to bring in a couple hosts? No, he's going to host again. <laughs> the things that we do as creators to ourselves, <laughs> you know, we'll, but it's we'll fun. Give him a nap when he's all done. Okay, so going longer because I my gut reaction is like, oh man, four days. Like I I I'd tighten that up a little bit, but that's interesting. What what evidence did you see that made you say, ah, next year needs to be longer? Honestly, if you're asking me like, what was the ROI or the evidence? There's not evidence. Okay, our heart is to give more value, and that's what we wanted to do. So to me, it's like when I think about this, and and school of traditional skills is a big part of what we do is we're not trying to build a brand that's going to convert somebody in 30 days or convert anybody ever really. Like that's not the first thing. The first thing is like, how much value can we offer? So we're not asking the question of, you know, what's the evidence that tell us to go longer. It's like the question we're asking is how can we add more value to people? And to me, this is like, this is a part of the long-term brand we're trying to build is, is again, like, yeah, you're probably right. Like, it was really a lot of work. We were all really tired. We were all up early in the morning and we were all up late at night. We were all doing a lot more. It'd be so much easier to condense it down and do it over two days. But that was like, that's not number one objective. Number one objective is how can we add more value this year than we did last year? And so when we ask that question and we filter everything through that, it's like five days. People want more content. People wanted more content last year. And I was like, great, well, let's give it to them. So that's number one question we're asking. And you know, we may not convert at the same per session or we may convert more or less. I don't, I'm not sure, but we know over the long run, if you answer the question of like, how can we add more value? You'll win over the long run. How do you think about brands like creative live as inspiration for this? Great. Cause you referenced masterclass early on as, as you know, inspiration for the school of traditional skills and really creative live is, with the level of quality that you're talking about is a similar business model to the summit. Yeah, it is. The The hard part about what creative live does and why it might be a harder business model for us is it's really hard to do some of the teaching live. Mm. <laughs> Come with me. We're going to butcher a goat, bring the camera closer. I'm sorry, but I don't have Wi-Fi signal out here to live stream this. <laughs> well, that's, that's it, right? Like, there's that part of it. It's like, what if the animals, I mean, usually it's, it's comically hilarious to be filming with us sometimes because a cow or a goat is not necessarily going to do what you needed to do. Right. You're trying to show how to milk a goat and the goat is like, not feeling it today. Sorry. Not feeling it today. Or like 
what if it's raining or what if it's uh, 105 degrees or who, who knows? Like there's a lot of variables that go into that. So that's why to us it was, you know, we wanted to bring the value in the way that we do instructional design and then the quality of the recorded content. But we actually do, we do a live session like the summit every single month. So when the new class releases, we do a similar kind of thing every single month for our folks. So there is an element of that that's happening on a regular basis where same kind of thing. There's a lot of pre-recorded content that comes in where people can see up close and hands in. We just did one a couple of weeks ago for like raised bed gardening because it's spring and a lot of people wanted to get into gardening. So how do I build raised beds? And it's hard to do that part live, but we can, you know, from month to month, on a smaller scale, you know, we have between ten and 15,000 people come to those. So on a smaller scale, we're doing that month over month too. Well, I guess what's interesting, what made me think of Creative Live is that their model was we're going to teach the class live and it's totally free if you want to sign up and watch it live. And so that gave them the event and it pushed everything to it. It gave it a fun dynamic for the instructor and, and the instructor wasn't having to shoot over like three or four days or something. It was like, nope, come here. You got to be on it with your material. You know, I remember friends like Chris Gillibo or Jeff Goins or others like teaching their their sessions. And then if you wanted to watch it on your own time, either again or you missed it, then you got a subscription and you paid for it. You either, I think, bought it one off or had like a $99 a month Creative Live subscription for Unlimited. And it's interesting because I think we ran into this with ConvertKit anything that you're selling all the time, someone could just buy it anytime. And so they don't. And so you miss like events are really powerful because it gives this urgency for promotion, urgency for conversion. And so looking at some of these models that are great at expanding the top of the funnel and bring urgency. Like I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. And I think what's interesting about, so we do a similar model with that, with our, our monthly events where we don't teach the whole class. We teach, portion of it. But what I like about it too, is it's validating in real time. So not every class is created equal from a marketing perspective, which is key. So even though there might be a class that adds a ton of value, it may not be the best on-ramp into the class. And I think that's interesting for creative live too, is, Hey, like if 25,000 people showed up for this live free, Oh, I think we can like put some marketing behind it because we know that people are really engaging with it. If 4,000 people show up, uh, maybe it's mid tier. If 400 show up, it's like, oh, we might not invest a lot of money into the marketing of this, even though there might be some value to it. But there's so much that you can learn offering the free events that, again, not all classes are created equal from a marketing perspective. And so there's so much that you can learn. The 80 20 principle or the 98 2 principle is true here too, is you've got to figure out what are the things that are working and just double down on them as much as you possibly can. And again, going back to our, our success early stage at ConvertKit, it was that it was like, there was one topic that we taught over and over again that people really wanted. And it just continued to work over and over and over and again. And we didn't have to teach a new class every single time we taught something. Cause it was like, we found the one that worked and we knew that the other three that we tried didn't work. So we could just focus all of our efforts on the things that work. So from that aspect of validating what works and what resonates with people. I love it a lot. Right. I'm trying to remember going back to those ConvertKit webinars. What were the things that, that worked well? Do you remember your first 1000 email subscribers? <laughs> yes, that was right. And the, the two, the two things that you taught that were like, 
at the time was like people was blowing people's mind was inviting 10 people. Yep. Starting with just 10, like texting your friends, all of that. Yeah. Yep. That. And then it was asking them what content they wanted and where they consumed it and then going to those places and publishing there. So at that time it was like, that was such, so much value. Right. Right. And then we got into some simple automations and other things like, we taught some more stuff there, but that was the main hook. And it was like at that point in the lifetime of ConvertKit, it was like most people wanted to learn how to get started and and that was it. So it was not, there was no discrimination. Like you can start, even if you don't have a big audience, you can start if you're not Pat Flynn, uh, you can start tomorrow. And what was crazy is I remember one of those webinars, we had a, it was a partnership two girls they had 1200 subscribers on their list just from inviting their friends and family in like three days so it was like man it's like there's no discrimination like if you put in the work you're going to see results from it and i think that's why people liked it it was like there was no there was no it was like a six inch hurdle that people could jump over instead of a six foot hurdle talk about the summit obviously getting a hundred thousand people to register is fantastic producing all this content is amazing but the ultimate goal is to drive sales and turn school of traditional skills into a sustainable business. Cause no amount of like, I want this to exist in the world. And so I'm just going to do it. Like that can work for six months, maybe a year or two, if you have deep pockets, but like making an impact in the world takes a profitable business model. So this is the part where we make it profitable. What, what works as far as driving conversions and how did you think about that? process. Yeah. The same thing, honestly, like what we do, and I think this is true of all marketing, Nathan, is it's not super complicated. (laughs) So we, we ran just a simple sales sequence after the summit for people to sign up. We had a, a discount, a discounted rate for what we called the founding members, which were people who were at the summit price went up after that. So it was, it was like the deadline effect for that, but product was really good. I started sales when I was 19 and I sold cell phones at a mall kiosk. This is when I, I learned how to sell. And to me, it was like I was a good salesman and also a bad salesman at the same time because I didn't sell something to somebody that they didn't need and I didn't sell them more than they needed ever. And so to me, it's so much easier to sell and to market when you're absolutely confident in what you're selling and the value that you've created. So I'll like, I'll, I'll, strum this chord again is like our product was so much value for the price we were selling it for. So when we launched it, it was nine classes and the cost of it was $190 a year or $19 a month. Each one of those classes was probably worth $190 on its own. So there was so much value, right? Not only that, you knew in October, so we launched in September, October, another one was coming in November, another one was coming December, another one was coming. So the value of the product was growing over time. And so we invest, that's why we invested two years before we even started selling anything is we wanted the product to be a no brainer. So what's an offer so irresistible that people can't say no, well, let's create that for them. And we did that. So we, and, and one thing that I'm really big on Nathan is I'm not the best copywriter in the world. I'm not the best like tactical salesman, but when I believe in a product, like I will not stop talking about it or we will not stop talking about it and it will do the work for you. So that was a big part of it is like, Hey, $190 to sign up for the year. 
guess what? You've got nine times that value this month, 10 next month, 11, 12. And that's a huge, a huge piece of it. That's why we did so well at ConvertKit is you were building the exact product that you wanted. And so there was so much value to it. We didn't have to like trick people into buying it. We didn't have to use like, like scammy tactics of like, but wait, there's more. And we didn't have to do any of that. Like you just don't have to create stuff that you think is so wildly valuable and just tell people about it. And so we had a five and a half percent conversion rate of our list in a six day window to our product and did really, really well from it, which I think is a great conversion rate for the scale of audience that we had at this free summit. And it's, it's not because we had some like, although I think our copywriting was really great. It's not because we had like a bunch of bonuses or trip wires or tricks. It was like, we, <laughs> we just created the most valuable thing we possibly could have think of. And then we offered it to people at a price that we thought was really fair. And honestly, like that's like, that's the best marketing strategy in the world is just sell something that's really, really valuable to me. I get, I get so fired up about this because there are no freaking shortcuts to this. There are no shortcuts. I feel like everybody's wanting some marketing hack or some growth hack or some like, like secret of a launch that is going to help them get to some big seven figure launch. The reality is it's very, very simple. <laughs> it's understand who you're talking to, create something that is wildly valuable to them and be fair to them in the way that you price it. Like there's just no shortcuts or no secrets to it. There are a lot of tactics that are important to know, but like that is 95% of it in my mind. So to me, like that's what we did. We spent two years building a product that was so, so valuable because we didn't want to have to like hit an ethical line or feel like we had to trick people into buying something. It's just like, what do people want? We knew that very well. We very, very much understood our market. We built the exact product that we knew that they would want and it, it, it did its work from there. So there's just no shortcuts. There's no, there's no, there are a lot of people who take the shortcuts, but the business has a, a very short shelf life. They'll kill it with one summit or something else. Right. But then two yeah, years so later, great. Cool. You did a huge more. summit. You had a great conversion, but like you had a 20% refund rate or people are like murmuring under their breath about like what the quality of the content is like, that's just not it. We have less than a 3% churn on our product so far. And that's huge because it's, it's people like are engaging with the content. We have nearly a 50% active user rate, which is huge. Like, so again, it's like, there's just not a shortcut here. It's what's the shortcut is to spend as much effort as you possibly can building really quality stuff and, and understand exactly who you're talking to and give it to them. So I, I get so fired up about this because I spent 10 years of my marketing career trying to learn all the hacks and the trips and, the, and the, it, it doesn't matter, man. Like, sure, you can become marginally better by learning all that stuff, or you can just be really excellent by creating really, really quality stuff. Okay. One thing that stood out to me is that all of your selling happened after the summit finished. Is that right? We lightly offered it at the end of the days, throughout the days, but I think, you know, 85% of our sales came after the summit was over. Did you have any, like, was there any bonus at the end of the day or any reason for me to buy during versus afterwards? No. So it was the same offer, the same offer for that. I think it was a six day window. So four of the days were the summit. And then there was two or three days after the summit. 
the, the offer was the same for everybody and we wanted to give everybody a fair shot at it, which was just a, a price discount. So there was no like a bunch of bonus bundles of bonuses or things like that. It was just a price, a really simple price discount that was exclusive for that, that group of people. Like traditional conversion rate theory would be that you should have some expiring, there should be deadlines throughout, right? Every day that there's a special bonus for that day or, you know, the price gradually increases. And those things work, by the way, for sure. Those things work for sure. Like uh, fast action bonuses and yeah. Like what, what was the reason to not go down that path? The particular audience that we're talking to is really sensitive, really sensitive to that kind of like, maybe like swarmy or spammy marketing tactic. You can tell when you're like, it's a hard sales pitch. Yeah. So that was a part of it. It's like, again, getting back to like understanding your target market is we didn't want to be those people to this group of people. Those tactics have really worked in other niches that I've worked in, like especially B2B. It's like, hey, if people don't have a reason to buy, they're probably not going to. That just wasn't going to work with our target audience. So we really had a deep understanding of who our audience was. And we just, we didn't want to be those people to that group of people because it wasn't going to work. So that's, that's, it was a really strategic decision to, to really simplify it. Anything that like in that conversion process or sales pitch that you would tweak for next year? I would probably sell even less. So even though we kind of made mentions of it, like I would probably sell even less during the actual live events and, and just focus more on letting the email do it on the backside of it. Cause by the time we got done, you know, there were people who showed up for all 24 hours of content and they were the first people to purchase. One thing that was really interesting that we did learn that I, I, I'll share is we offered a lifetime option, which I was very against at first, but we have a really great advisor who is a subscription advisor and basically took what we thought our LTV was going to be. We, we anticipated a three-year LTV on our subscriptions and we just sold the lifetime at a five-year value. So we knew that we could collect the money up front for what we anticipated the LTV to be. And it was really big for us because we did raise money for the company, but we didn't raise a lot of money. And so we were able to get a lot more money up front for the folks who were really bought in early, which then allowed us to continue to develop the content that we've developed over the last nine months after the, the summit. Yeah. And raising money, like a lot of people are like raising money for a creator business. But when you think about the number of courses that you're producing up front and the video teams that you're flying into, you know, like Idaho is already not, and I can say this because I live here, um, you know, like Idaho is pretty remote. And then you go Northern Idaho. Yeah. And, and everywhere we film is remote. Everywhere we film is remote. It is like you fly into some small airport, you drive an hour or two hours from there. There may or may not be internet on property. Who knows? So it does cost. And I know you were even skeptical of me raising money at the beginning. You're like, hey, this is cool. Sure? I have no <laughs> doubt that you're going to make it work. But like, I don't know. But yeah, like that, we did get questions about this, but we we spent a good amount of money developing a lot of quality content and then kept that going throughout the last nine months. And, and there's a, a lot happening that goes into creating that level of content. And that's why we wanted to raise the money is, we probably could have bootstrapped this. We are, we're more than competent and able to do that, but it allowed us to shortcut the development of the 
library of content that we now have versus like just launching with one or two. And I think that was a huge part of the success of the conversions for that live event is there were nine available versus one or two that we maybe would have been able to bootstrap. Yeah. And if you, you could also have ended up in a situation where you had to ramp up over time to meet your quality bar. Like the first few courses you're like, I mean, the content's great, but like the production quality is not quite there or something else. And so you're able to just come in at your quality bar from day one and you're, you know, years from now, well, I mean, well, I'm gonna say years from now, you're not gonna look back on the first one and be like, oh God, you know. Actually, in a way, I hope you do because I think there's so much, you know, like you always want that when you read the first book you wrote, you're like, yeah, I could do so much better now. But it's not this. It's not like taking yeah, exactly. a, a phone <laughs> and creating content. It was like, you know, we had, uh, we had a crew out there. We had like professional sound and lighting and, and it is a complex thing to produce that content, like we said, for all the reasons before, like animals and weather and like trekking through the woods or, you know, and one of the places that we, we filmed at was like 1,200 acres. <laughs> so like just moving equipment through 1,200 acres is no joke. So it, it's a lot. And we, we wanted that quality out of the gate, again, knowing that that was a part of the the success that we knew that we would, we would need to have that level of quality. So raising the money was key. And then also subscription businesses are just great from a valuation standpoint. So we knew with things like masterclass and I think ConvertKit was very similar and like, Hey, like we can look at things like MailChimp or these bigger companies that have been around for a long time and know that there's a way for us to value this company in a way that makes sense long-term we saw masterclass and we're like, Hey, we're not necessarily going to become masterclass and have a $1.7 billion valuation. But like if we can carve out our niche and do our niche really well, this can be a really valuable business, even if it's not a $1.7 billion business someday. But we know there's a lot of value here for our group of people. And so it may, it would be a win for everybody, a win for our users, a win for the founding team and a win for our investors. And, and again, that's the kind of business that I want to, be a part of. I love it. Cause uh, when you have that, that mindset and approach to partnerships, then you're just like, look, there's endless people that I can do business with and be friends with for a long time versus I think we all have come across people who sort of have this like string of failed deals, you know, or it's like they have great ideas, but the execution wasn't there. And people are like, we're still friends, but that was rough, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I love you, but I don't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. So right now, like in the homesteading space, you know, you're really scaling these two businesses. Is there something else that you're launching next, or is it like those are the two things? Now go build them into skyscrapers. Yeah, I'm gonna build. We're building these into skyscrapers. You and I have had this conversation for for many years about strip malls or skyscrapers, and so yeah, we want to build these businesses and and really invest in this community. And so this is this is the main focus over over the next however long indefinite period of time. And we really think there's a lot of value that we can add to the world. And so that this is what you'll be able to find me doing for, for a long time. I love it. Well, where should people go to follow you and then follow the, uh, the businesses? Yeah, I'm really boring. So just go to the businesses school of traditional skills.com <laughs> or homesteadliving.com. Check those out You can follow me on Twitter, but I, I don't tweet at divest. Is life better if you don't tweet? I'm just curious. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it might be. You know the the balance of like being a behind the scenes operator, you know, and like 
Someone's like, well, what do you do all day? I'm like, I, I you know, work on things instead of just like <laughs> tweeting, you know, there's pros and cons. Yeah, there is. So yeah, those, those are the two companies, school of traditional skills.com homesteadliving.com. Check it out and then hit me up. You can email me Daryl at either of those domains and I'd be happy to chat more. So lots of fun going on and, and watch out for what we do over the next couple of years. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks Nathan. 